Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is committed to the intersection between theology, culture, and contemporary questions, preparing leaders who are equipped to serve the church and world through diverse career paths. Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu stm. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. And a special guest, our editor-in-chief, Father Matt Malone. Welcome to Jesuitical. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. And congratulations on your transition from editor-in-chief of America to full-time Jesuitical co-host. Yes. (laughs) A lot of people are saying it's a step down, but we we know it's a step up. No, it represents the ascent of man. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you for being here. We got a really great show coming up. The main reason we brought you on, we're also going to talk to you about some things too, but uh, we we have something to get out of the way, which is that normally uh, during Lent, we are not drinking, as is our as is our custom uh, on this show, to you know make that small sacrifice. Um, but St. Patrick's Day is this week, and it's a big big week at America Media. And so, in honor of that, we usually ask for a dispensation, and we're hoping to get that granted this year. Well, as you know, we here at America take St. Patrick's Day off. Yes, because... I thought you were going to say very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> because. Sa- St. Patrick is the patron saint of the archdiocese in which we are headquartered. Yes. So we take the day off so that we can all go to mass and give thanks for Patrick's patronage. Yes. Well, and it'd be one thing if you gave us the day after St. Patrick's day off. That that would be, yes, exactly. That would be something else that entirely. Would, that would be a yes. <laughs> Perhaps uh, even more helpful. <laughs> but I am delighted to do this. I mean, by the power vested in me by myself, I uh, hereby exempt you from this... Uh, your abstemiousness Wonderful. for March 17th. Excellent. Well, that's really exciting because our guest this week is someone really exciting who makes a mean Manhattan. Yeah. So we'll get to the guest in a minute. But yeah. First, but first, cheers, cheers. to, to St. Patrick, cheers to our Patrick. patron. Yes. All right. So the man who makes a mean Manhattan is Father Steve Katsouros. Steve is a Jesuit priest and the president and CEO of the Come to Believe Network. And before that, he founded Arupe College, which is the Jesuits' first uh, two-year community college. Yeah, I was really excited about to talk to Steve because uh, Arupe College, it's based out of my alma mater, Loyola Chicago. And it's one of the things that makes me most proud of, you know, having gone to school there. Uh, the Jesuits again and again and again are reimagining ways to educate young people um, and make it more accessible. You know, Jesuits are known for high quality education, but it hasn't always been accessible to to everybody. And so they've been rethinking, you know, if you, you're a fan of the Crystal Ray Network or the Nativity Model, the, the Come to Believe Network is in that same vein uh, for for college education. So really great conversation with Steve coming up. So stick around for that. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Here at Jesuitical, we are big believers that learning makes life more fun and interesting. That is what we try to do every week on the show. That's why we bring on such fascinating guests. But you don't have to wait for a Jesuitical every week to get your learning fix. We get it at Wondrium. 
Wondrium is a great service. It's very convenient. You can have it on your phone. It's an app, and you can browse their broad catalog of programs on everything from philosophy and theology to uh, nature and and how-to guides. This week, I, I don't know about you, but I've been uh, getting emails reminding me that it's tax season, which has inspired me to look at my bank statements and pay attention to the markets, and it's a little bit overwhelming. So I checked out the program Financial Literacy, Finding Your Way in the Financial Markets. It breaks down these very complex things about stocks and bonds and, you know, am I investing in a traditional 401k or Roth IRA and what does that mean? Uh, So I've been really enjoying that this week. And if that sounds like something you would be interested in, Wondrian is the place for you. And we highly recommend signing up for their annual plan through our special URL. Our listeners get a special offer of just $99 for your first year. That's a 58% savings from the monthly plan. You'll get premium ad-free unlimited access to learn from some of the world's brightest minds. It's a great deal, so be like us. Sign up for Wondrium. Right now, our listeners get a free trial when they sign up for the discounted annual plan. To get this special offer, go to our special URL. It's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Don't wait. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And the biggest Catholic news of the week is what, Matt? That for the first time in its history, American media launched a national marketing campaign called Own Your Faith. Hashtag Hashtag Own Your Your Faith. Faith. Very hip. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, an opportunity to let the world know about the fantastic work that we're doing here at America um, across all of our platforms, stuff like what you're doing on Jesuitical. Who is this? campaign for? You know, I mean, the demographic of the audience of America has been the same for almost our entire history, certainly for the last 50 years. Um, They are educated Catholics. Uh, They, you know, 90% of them have a bachelor's degree. Uh, 40% of them have a graduate degree. They are relatively committed. They go to mass at least once or twice a month. They are engaged in their communities and they have some affiliation with the Jesuits. And if right. they're listening to this podcast right now, this counts. Right. This yeah. counts exactly. as your affiliation with the Jesuits. Yes. <laughs> exactly. They have, and they have some affiliation with the Jesuits. And, you know, when you, you just take that demographic profile, um, if there are, there are almost three million of those people in this country, right? When you count all of the alumni of our 28 colleges and universities and 54 high schools. So we thought, how are we going to reach that, that you know, that group of people, um, we're not going to be able to do it through just the traditional means. Um, we're going to have to, you know, look for outlets and for um, platforms elsewhere, like in the Wall Street Journal, where we appeared this week, um, where there's a similar demographic profile. So let's talk about the campaign itself and kind of the approach we're taking to this. You said it's hashtag own your faith. So like, what what are you trying to communicate with that? And then maybe what are some of the other elements of the campaign? What is the kind sure. of conversation we're trying to start with this? So, I mean, own your faith means that, you know, the church belongs to all of us, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, it belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his church. But for that very reason, it belongs to all of us. Not just priests and bishops. It's and not folks. just priests and bishops. It's not just Father Matt Malone. It's everybody, right? It's your church, too. And, um, and Do you so, think people don't feel that right now? I think sometimes they experience the church in a kind of passive way, and um, it's sort of always been there. It's always there. It's it's a place where you know I might receive some kind of you know spiritual nourishment or whatever. But um, I, you know, in terms of, I don't think people always give a lot of thought to their active input, 
right? And so own your faith means, you know, uh, it, it's time for all of us to, to step up and say, yeah, we're a part of this and we want to be a part of the conversation about what is happening in this church. We're intending to, you know, message to the, the audience through this campaign that, you know, we're with you in that effort. We're with you in that struggle. We're asking here the very questions that you're asking, questions like, you know, God made man in his own image, you know, has man made woman less, right? Let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about sexism um, and uh, institutionalized and otherwise. And, uh, you know, questions like, you know, how can I trust the church when, um, you know, the church failed to protect our children? People are asking those questions, but they've not felt like they can bring up topics like, like sex abuse, racism, sexism, um, the way the role of the church in the public square, like politics, these right. things, you're not supposed to talk about these things in church or it's, you know, you can, you're going to go have that conversation over here and who knows if the church even wants to hear about it. Yeah, I think that that's true. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, there's nothing that you should be afraid to talk about in church. You know, I had a novice master who used to say that whenever you are going to pray, the, the first thing that you should talk to Jesus about is the last thing you want to talk about. Right. Um, like there's nothing that's foreign to the church that is a part of the human experience. So uh, we, ought to, we ought to be fearless in our ability to talk about these things precisely because we're rooted in our faith and we're safeguarded by that faith, right? Um, we ought to be free to have conversations. Um, and, you know, that's what, that's what we're doing here and, and, and having a diversity of voices in those conversations. Yeah. One of the lines or taglines, I guess, of the campaign is, is the Catholic struggle is real. I'm wondering what, what you're trying to capture with that. Like, what does that mean for you? Like, is it, is it a struggle for you even as a priest? Or do you sense that when you, when you're talking to ordinary Catholics, um, that, that, that there's a real struggle right now? Sure. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, for me, it, it, it is a struggle at times. I mean, overwhelmingly, though, it's a source of great consolation um, and hope for me, my faith and the, and the church. But it, of course, it's, I don't know of a human being who hasn't struggled. I don't know of a Catholic who hasn't struggled with something that the church teaches. And, you know, this is, this is a complicated reality today in the 21st century, but it's not a new one, right? I mean, the that's the work of the church in every generation it's to take this faith that we have received as gift right from our forebears and to live it in the real world right in the world that is immediately present to us and um that's not easy to do right and it's okay to talk about it it's okay to struggle with it if you're if you're not in some way struggling with your faith then it's probably not faith it's it's the opposite of faith which is certainty I think it'd be good, you know, this is sort of the, the theoretical approach to the campaign, but the real hook is some of the, the, these questions that we, we put out there for people to consider and thought it might be good to kind of dig into one right now, uh, even though it might be uncomfortable. One of the main questions we pose to people in some of these video spots is uh, on cancel culture. And so the question we're asking is, where does accountability end and cancel culture begin? Uh, because you know, I think we'd like to say that our faith has something to uh, teach us about this question that you know a lot of people are asking in their in their lives right now. So I'd wonder how you would respond to that question. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question, and um, and I think it is it's something that people are wrestling with. The way I look at it is, uh, I, I always say to folks, you know, when you're when you're struggling with somebody who might have a different viewpoint, it's important to listen to uh, the values that are behind. Um, their opinion, 
right? And you know, when we're talking about cancel culture, often enough, the 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 values that are that are the input into that into that movement are good ones, right? Um, you know, we we want people to treat other people with respect. We want uh, people to uphold the basic dignity of other human beings and to respect it. The question is, how does that play out, right? And if it plays out in a way that isn't in some way sweetened by other things that the church values, like mercy and tenderness and truth, right? Um, then it it becomes a very it becomes a very blunt instrument, right? So the way I look at it is, we ought not to be just shutting people down for uh, having an opinion that's different than ours, right? Um, that's not in the interest of democracy, and it's certainly not in it's not consistent with the sort of generosity of the gospel, right? But at the same time. Um, you know, there are, there are lines and, uh, and, and where those lines are isn't always clear. And that's why we have to talk about it. Yeah. I think what I struggle or why I find it so alarming is just like, because so much of this happens like in like online spaces, it's, there's just a very inhuman element to it. Like you, you see the way people treat each other on Twitter is like like they would never say those things to another person's face if they if they were you know in person with with them and so there's so one like you're willing to do things um, that you know you wouldn't do but then there's no mechanism for like forgiveness or like you know or even you know, empathy yeah like yeah and like you're never gonna like okay maybe you were bad and you said something and it was you know ten days later you're like ah oh, that was probably a little bit too much but you're not gonna like see that person again and be like, hey, sorry, that was probably a little bit overboard. <laughs> right. And so when you don't, when there's not a human being in front of you, I just find it, it the, just the scale of it makes it impossible to inject any mercy. Yeah. It does reveal a real sickness in our culture, in a deficiency in that we don't have a culture that, that values mercy on the one hand, but also doesn't like invite repentance either. Right. It's sort of just assumed that like you're, if someone, something has come to light, and someone has done something wrong you they've either it's either like banish them forever or for like it's not that big of a deal and the types of apologies and statements we get i you know are typically like pretty insufficient because almost to admit fault is to admit like i'm going to go away forever or i'm going to be canceled forever or whatever and i wonder what we need to do is as a people of god to build up both a culture that is ready to to forgive but also one that's ready that's more willing to repent yeah what does the Twitter version of the confessional? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no. I mean, and that that really that really is the challenge. And you know, Pope Benedict, uh, in his interview with Peter Sewald in uh, the mid nineteen nineties, he said, you know, the, as as secularism advances, our politics will become more and more moralistic, mm-hmm. right? And um, that is that is what we're seeing, right? I mean, if uh, it's it ironically. You know, in a world where there's a kind of relativism at work, right, um, in people's decision making, at the same time there is this 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 unrelenting dogmatism as well, right, <laughs> and it's replaced a sort of co- conventional Judeo-Christian morality. Uh, it's displaced that, and you know, this new you know morality is is pretty arbitrary and depersonalized. And and the more depersonalized our interactions are, the more prone they are to violence of some kind. Yeah. And that that's true. So and and we as Christians have particular resources that we can bring to bear. Uh and and I think we have an obligation to do so. 
Well, if this is the kind of conversation that stimulates you, that you, you've got opinions on, that you want to know more about, uh, these are the types of conversations we're having every day in American media. And so on this podcast, uh, in our pages, online, in our videos. And so we really are trying to get the word out because we know that there are other Catholics out there that would appreciate this ministry, this media resource, and they just don't know about us yet. Right. And so if you're listening to this right now and that's the kind of conversation you want to be a part of, please visit americamagazine.org. You're going to see Own Your Faith uh, modules there. Uh, there's a lot of great content coming out in the, in the next month in particular. So please um, subscribe if you haven't already, but in, in, and if you can't get in touch with us. Um, and also tell someone about either you know this podcast, about America. Uh, now's the time. We're, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot of noise out there right now pumping, pumping America out there. So they're going to see it somewhere else. So again, visit americamagazine.org. Amen. All right, Matt, thanks so much for coming on today. It was my pleasure. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joining us in studio is Steve Katsouros. Steve is a Jesuit priest and the president and CEO of the Come to Believe Network. Welcome to Jesuitical. Ashley, thanks so much. It's great to be here with Zach and you this afternoon, and I'm looking forward to a fun conversation with you both. So are we, and we're really excited to be drinking the Manhattans that you've provided for us, so much appreciated for those. I am really excited to talk to you for a number of reasons, but uh, part of it is you uh, started Arupe College at my alma mater, and it's one of the things that I'm most proud of about go Ramblers. alma mater. So yeah, go Ramblers. Um, but I wonder if we could ground this conversation in uh, what the Jesuit interest in education in, in general is. I feel like that's something that's taken for granted. And a lot of us, it, people who've gone to Jesuit schools sort of, you know, know this implicitly, but assume that people listening have no idea who the Jesuits are and why they might be interested in education. Where does this, where's this come from? 
The Tigris and the Euphrates is always uh, St. Ignatius Loyola. So St. Ignatius, I'm sure you know, invested a lot in the educations of the Jesuits in his own uh, education at the University of, of Paris. And was that, was that kind of unique at, for Extremely, orders? Extremely, yes. um, I've always been told it's that like they put all the slow learners in one order. I don't know if that, if, is that why there's so much education or is there something else to it? It takes us a while, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened was the Jesuits had uh, this, you know, the, great reputations in terms of being scholars and teachers and preachers, they were being encouraged, Ignatius was being encouraged to start schools. He hated this idea. You know, he wanted Jesuits to be super available, not tied down to a building and personnel and responsibilities. He just wanted to make men available to whatever the 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 the, the current need was. Now, he was talked out of this, you know, uh, in terms of starting schools. I've always said I'm greatly relieved that someone convinced him to start schools because otherwise I would be unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out for me and for countless other Jesuits and our colleagues and students, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, this expression is attributed to Ignatius. He said, well, all right, we should be influencing those who will influence others. So Jesuit teachers and then their colleagues are influencing students who will be influential in their families and their communities and in politics and in the world. And so that was the motivator for him to influencing those who will influence others. So that was the beginning. And God, these schools took off like wildfire in the 16th century and the 17th century, so on and so forth. And of course, now you know there are I think 200 higher ed institutions that are sponsored by the Jesuits around the globe. There are 27 Jesuit universities in the United States. There are over 50 Jesuit high schools. So yeah, I'm glad that Ignatius snapped out of it. So some, said, of, some of the big colleges in the US, for people who maybe don't know, I'm, I'm going to offend some people by who I... Well, Arupe College is number one. Is number one, yes. <laughs> Followed um, by Georgetown. You know, so you've got your, your Georgetown, your Fordhams, your Loyola Chicago's. If it's named Loyola, there's a very good chance that it's a Jesuit <laughs> institution. So there's a number of Loyola's. Gonzaga. I'm, I'm going through sports teams now. <laughs> yeah. um, but, Marquette. But, but in case you in case you weren't familiar, those are all Jesuit institutions. Uh, Boston College. I've been reminded by several people in our in our <laughs> chat here. <laughs> that was wow. I can't believe I was about to get a lot of angry letters for that one. So those are some of the big ones. Yeah. So that's where we're at today. Um, I'm wondering if you have this book, Come to Believe, How the Jesuits Are Reinventing Education, again. And I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us about Arupe College and in what tradition that's so I would say that in the 60s, you know, our superior general at that time, Father Arupe, was saying, all right, we've got these great schools, you know, and they are influencing those who will influence others. And he gave this very famous address to alumni of Jesuit high schools in Europe in the early 70s. And you know where this is going, where uh, Arupe said, listen, congratulations. You've been very successful professionally. We're so grateful for how you are benefactors to your alma maters. But if you're not, and the schools were all male at that time, he said, if you're not men for others, then we did not serve you well. Because the whole point of Jesuit education is to make this gift, this training, this experience, this formation available to folks in the margins. And that really took hold in terms of the American educational conscience. So, I mean, I would say that now, if you're a graduate of a Jesuit school and you weren't told you're, you know, your call is to be a person formed with others, you should get your tuition back because, I mean, that should really be a big part of, you know, what you're hearing during your, your time of enrollment. So that really influenced educators here saying, yeah, all right, Arupe's right. And, and if we're just running schools for the elite, well, you know, good. So, you know, 
2012, 2013, I think it was 2013, the Superior General of the Jesuits, Father Adolfo Nicolás, is speaking at this really interesting meeting in Chicago to all the presidents of the Jesuits uh, universities and their board chairs. And this is not a verbatim, all right? But he just said, you know, it's extraordinary, the, the presence that Jesuit higher ed has had in this country. And so congratulations for the, the universities that you have. However, you're really expensive. You know, what about the poor? What about people who could never even imagine enrolling in one of your universities because they just think, oh, well, that's for rich people. That's not for me. I could never afford that. So one of the Jesuit presidents attending that meeting was Mike Garanzini, the president of Loyola University. He had been president of Loyola Chicago for a while. He had talked to a lot of presidents of Catholic high schools, principals of public high schools, um, heads of charter schools. And he knew that there was this population that just, you know, well, it's not for me. It's a school for white people. It's a school for smart people. It's a school for wealthy people and these perceptions, you know, kind of thing. And so the wheels were turning in Mike's mind. And, you know, I was on a flight. This is pretty early on with Wi-Fi on planes, but I was on a flight. I was working at US, at the University of San Francisco at the time. And um, I got pinged by Mike saying, listen, I have something for you here. And um, it's kind of risky, but what do you think about this? So I was flying from, I don't know, somewhere on the East Coast to San Francisco. And I thought, Oh God, I'm in my fifties. It's a startup. I'd started a nativity in my thirties and, you know, I knew that that was a lot of work and I was living in San Francisco, great wine, great weather. I, <laughs> I had, I have a master's from Loyola Chicago. I was there in the nineties. I loved it. I had a great experience there, but it's like, oh God, the weather there, the winter. I can't confirm the uh, winters are tough. <laughs> you, you know it. So, mm -hmm. but, but by the time I landed, I thought this is what we ought to be doing. And at that, as I said, I was in my fifties and I said, you know, I'm looking for work that is consistent with who we say we are, you know, in terms of our commitment to social justice, commitment to the marginalized, being persons for and with others. And how do we make already existing universities more accessible to a different kind of population, to this population that would never imagine enrolling at a place like Loyola University, which is a great school and competitive and selective and expensive, you know? Yeah. So um, can, I, can I pause you real quick yeah. there? And just, because I think a lot of young people have this too, where they they see um, either an institution or something they've been a part of, and it, it maybe feels like it's not lining up with what it professes itself to be or what values it has. The, like, this person itself might want it to have. What was that like for you as you're, as you're kind of thinking through that, you know, because you, as you said, you kind of you could have slid into a pretty, a nice like Jesuit life of of wine and teaching. Um, wh where did that like disruption in your own prayer life and discernment come like lead you? You know, I can't say it was just easy or like rolling off a log. It was daunting. I thought, oh God. I mean, again, this is a startup, and this could really be a disaster. You know, this could go nowhere. And once again, you know, something could be attempted to benefit, you know, folks in the margins and it doesn't work out, you know. So for me, I was weighing all that, but I remember talking to a friend of mine, a Jesuit who was pastor of St. Ignatius in San Francisco, a great friend of mine, Greg Benfilio, and he said, Steve, as you talk about this, you are so animated. I mean, this is like Ignatian discernment, you know, like like a, a TED talk on uh, on discernment. You are just so on fire about this that you've got to get on that plane and go to Chicago and check it out because it, it's engaging you. So I said, really? You think so? And he said, I know so. Come on. I mean, like you're, you're talking about this nonstop. Uh, so call Garanzini and get going. 
And I did. It was like May in San Francisco. So I packed like this little windbreaker and it was snowing at O'Hare. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and I was kind of, I had jet lag and I, I didn't feel like I was at my best, but I thought this is definitely what I wanted to be doing. My provincial here in New York uh, at the time, Dave Sansomino, was, again, so excited about a potential new model, like Nativity was new in the 70s, like Christo Ray was new in the 90s. And so he said, of course, I'll make you available to this. I'll, of course, I'll mission you to this. So I thought, okay, well, I'm getting all of this validation from you know Jesuits who matter and who are um, friends of mine. So uh, it was something to pursue. I want to get a sense of kind of like the educational landscape you were facing when you decided to take this on because I don't know if you read the New York Times you're gonna think that most most Americans go to like four colleges in the northeast and in reality like that is a tiny sliver of what higher education is in this country and it sucks up all the oxygen so I don't think a lot of people understand the realities for the kind of people that you're trying to serve with Arupe are when it comes to getting to college so can you walk us through the challenges that they're facing and how the current models are or are not helping them. You know, just for our listeners, I don't know if I've said this yet, maybe you have. So Rupe is a two-year college. Uh, the students uh, complete associate degrees there. You know, 40% of our student body right now enrolled in higher ed are in community colleges. What we found in Chicago at that time in the 2012, 13, 14, there were Gosh, close to 130,000 students enrolled in the seven city colleges of, of Chicago, the seven two-year colleges. 7% were graduating. Wow. 7%. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? And, um, and that's for lots of different reasons. I mean, you know, there are, you know, some of these schools have tens of thousands of, 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 of students. They're all commuters. They have a lot of complete, competing priorities. They're working. They have family obligations. Uh, their schleps might be long to their campuses. But also we were finding that they weren't getting good advising. And these were generally students who were first gen. So their parents weren't navigating all of this for them because they had been to four-year schools. They were really on their own. And the advisors oftentimes were heroic, but they were advising five, six, seven hundred, you know, advisees. So it was just a setup. And so there was that. Loyola recognized we were missing out on great local students. So Zach, you know, you were from Ohio and you came to Chicago and, you know, that's kind of a profile of a lot of uh, loyal students. students yeah. Right. These are all commuters. They all live in the 77 neighborhoods of, of Chicago. And, you know, these students were B minus to C minus in high school, as I said, first gen, uh, Pell eligible, undocumented. 96% uh, of the students are people of color. A lot of times these are students who go to two-year colleges, and if they don't have that great advisor or that class that catches them, or if there's a couple of hundred dollars that gets in their way, that becomes a barrier, then they drop out. And that's why those completion rates are so low. Nationally, it's 13% complete in two years. So these are really low numbers. And so students who, like all of us, they're looking for community, they want to belong, and they wonder if they belong at uh, a student that's primarily white and where they perceive everyone being wealthier. You know, so they, loyal is not on the horizon for them because they, they, they don't think they're going to belong there. And then let's say if they do go, to um, school and they their first paper is a sea of red in terms of you know corrections or they bomb their first test. That's confirmation that they don't belong. 
And for other students, you can say, oh, well, go to the writing center. Well, that's more confirmation. You know, other students from other backgrounds are like, oh, well, yeah, where's my academic coach? I had one in high school, you know? These students don't, didn't have that. You know, their high schools are often under-resourced or that's just not part of their experience. So it's all about making students feel like they belong at great places like Loyola. And that's really why our program was successful. And I, and I don't want to s- spoil the the narrative for listeners but you were you were successful uh in 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 you know keeping the if we just look at retention rate for example right like uh, so what are your guys's numbers like yeah. so you know 7 13% you know we graduate over half of our students graduate you know uh, over 50% graduate in 2 years over 60% graduate in 3 years Arupe was designed so that these students from low wealth backgrounds would not incur debt. So 75% of our students complete 61 credits, mainly their general ed requirements and some pre-major courses. They complete the, the, their associate degree and they report no debt. Um, and the other 25, 26% have a, you know, maybe they, they're carrying a debt of under $1,400. So these are great numbers. 88% of uh, our graduates go on to four-year schools. Nationally, 14% of those students who start two-year colleges complete their bachelor's degrees in six years' time, 14%. So we're like close to 80% completing their bachelor's degrees in five years' time. So it seems to work. I mean, not only does it work at Arupe while they're with us, and they're getting supported and they're experiencing community and they feel like they belong, but they go on to Loyola or they transfer to other universities. And the foundation, this bridge that they experienced during the two years with us seems to serve them well in other in other um, higher ed settings. And what's the, I mean, what's the secret? I know it's not that it's a secret because you've started this network to bring to other places, <laughs> but what are the things that make it unique that, um, you know, the community college that has a 7% completion rate doesn't, doesn't like hone in on? So size matters, you know, I mean, we were uh, pre-pandemic, we were, we had 350 students. You can do a lot of community with smaller numbers, you know. It was big enough so that it wasn't a boutique. It was big enough so that we could run three different associate degree programs and lots of course offerings. But it was small enough so that every student was well known to several people working at um, at a Bay College. They were not anonymous. Um, they were known to several people that worked at – I just – I feel like that's important, so I just want to – Critical. Yeah. Critical. You know, our faculty are heroic. And, uh, you know, they, uh, so they served as the advisors. You know, I was just lamenting a few moments ago about the advisory loads for um, academic advisors in city colleges. So every one of our faculty members had 20 students, not 200, not 500, not 700 students that they were advising. So, I mean, I'm still in touch with so many of our alumni, and so are our faculty, the, the students that they advised. Those are very rich, thick relationships. You know, the other thing that I'd say is that we try to anticipate what the barriers would be to success. So, you know, you might remember this, Zach. Loyola has this retreat in ecology campus in Woodstock, Illinois, which is way out in the middle of kind of nowhere, you know, the suburbs of Chicago. I was a LUREC uh, groupie. I, 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 I frequented weekends at the retreat center. <laughs> it's a great place. Yeah. And so we would bring our students there and they were like, whoa, what is this? I mean, like, I see stars and I'm, you know, I, <laughs> you know mosquitoes and what is this? <laughs> but they had roommates and we started building community there. Now, again, that, that residential piece was very important for commuter students particularly. And that place was a real touchstone for them, like it sounds like it was for you as well. So this is a college within Loyola, um, and you emphasize the importance of them feeling like they belong to the community. How do you make sure that they don't feel like 
second class citizens kind of at the university? Yeah, that's a great question. And we really worked hard at that. And sometimes, you know, there were ups and downs. And this was uh, a very new kind of uh, first of its kind experience. My focus was always on, I mean, we were blessed with uh, our own building. And so we did everything in that building, classes, offices. I gutted a space and made that into a student commons. And early on, uh, the president, Mike Garanzini, said, well, now, Steve, you have to share the building with another academic unit. And I said, Mike, we're both Jesuits. Remember, we we don't do well with sharing. We're not, <laughs> we're not good at that. And so I said, yeah, well, get over yourself. And so he said, why don't you, why don't we put the School of Education there? And I said, well, and I had been the associate dean for the School of Ed at USF. I love that experience. Um, but I said, you have a school of social work here at Loyola, don't you? Every MSW student I've ever met is looking for hours. So how about we'll we'll be their hours and our students and maybe me will we'll, 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 we'll benefit from their services. That was a great mm-hmm. synergy between two totally different academic units at Loyola University. Now, some of the things that you've mentioned that that really work, right? Like being known to multiple people, um, having creating community. It it doesn't sound like rocket science, right? Like as soon as you hear it, you're like, yeah, duh. That those were the things that made an impact when I was in college. But I'm noticing this. You know, we talk to a lot of smart people on this podcast, and one of the key themes that comes up is the the importance of accompaniment, right? I'm thinking of, we had a conversation with Dr. Paul Farmer and sort of he revolutionizes healthcare with this idea of patient advocates, which basically um, people who just accompany people through large bureaucracy and difficult things and had a great conversation about ending homelessness with community solutions and same idea. You have someone who just walks with and accompanies someone through a, a large bureaucracy that's hard to figure out. And it sounds like there are similar dynamics happening here with the Arupe model, right? Like having someone walk with and walk uh, instead of doing doing with instead of doing for. And the accompaniment is a huge word for Pope Francis, right? That's been a huge thing of his ministry. What does that mean to you for the Arupe model and how you see this going forward? Well, that's critical. Here's an anecdote for you. We would interview all of the students applying to, for admission to Arupe. I designed the interview protocol. I was very influenced by Angela Duckworth's, Duckworth's work on um, grit. grit yeah. yeah, so I was looking for grit, resilience, persistence. So the question for the interview was, oh, "So Zach, um, you know, tell me about an obstacle in your life. What was it? What did you do about it? Did you get help for it? Are you still in it? If your younger sister or brother were going through it, how would you advise them?" And so we we built a great first class with that question. However. Okay, you're low wealth. Oh, you're undocumented. Oh, you're Pell eligible. Oh, you're a person of color. You must have an obstacle, was my implicit message to you. That's the deficit. All right. We flipped that. We couldn't have done this the first year, but in subsequent years, we were able to say to our applicants, we have an amazing community here. And, you know, you're hearing that from our current students, and uh, they really are pioneering this with us. They're building community with us. Uh, and looking at your application and your essay and reading their recommendations from your principal or your coach or your favorite teacher, you have a lot of gifts and talents. So tell us about a strength or something about your personality that you think you could contribute to making an already uh, good community even better. That's the asset narrative. That's the asset f- uh, frame. And so- Here's what I'm bringing, not here's what I'm lacking. This is not charity. This is a talent strategy. You know, we think these students have great talent. They're going to make Loyola, Chicago, even better because they're enrolled. So, so yes, I mean, to answer your question, accompanying is key. We um, uh, related. We were working on the mission statement early on. I had um, 
a, a board member who was very wealthy, who you know I was cultivating for a gift, and uh, he was on the committee to discuss, you know, to, to write the mission statement. He said, "We don't have any language about how we're saving the students." And I said, "How we're what?" He goes, "You know, we're saving them, we're fixing them, we're saving them." So I thought, "Oh God, I mean, I want." I want this guy to give to Arupe, but like, I mean, this is like <laughs> horrible to me. You know, we're saving them. So I thought, oh, you know, I just, well, you know, um, Jesus saves, and that's a big job. <laughs> so let's let Jesus do that. Like, he can save. I signed up to, you know, what Pope Francis says we're accompanying these students during their first post secondary ed experience. That's what we do here. We accompany them. He didn't like that, but, um, I think it made sense. I mean, that saving language is, oof, you know, talk about <laughs> like a microaggression. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I, the, accompanying these students and really learning with them and from them. Uh, I'm a better educator. I'm a better administrator. I'm a better person because um, uh, of the students I, I encountered at Arupe. I was accused of moving too quickly at um, a root bank, getting this, you know, off the ground in 10 months time. I like, remember like covering it at America and being and thinking like, oh my gosh, they're like going from scratch in one year. And How is this going to work? We enrolled 159 <laughs> students. Yeah. I'm uh, just to pivot a little more broadly to how you see Arupe fitting in the larger discussions happening about education and higher education in this country. Um, there's a lot of talk about it, it, the, the liberal arts being less important and, uh, you know, College is too expensive. It's not for everybody. Um, that kind of ra like raises my the hairs on mm -hmm. my skin. The college is not for everybody thing. Um, what do you hear when someone says that? Like, uh, you know, not everybody needs to go to college. Well, what what I hear is when people say, "Oh, your students, okay. Um, how about the trades for them? How about they can you know become electricians and plumbers and <clears throat> and I mean, look, when you need a plumber, no one's more important in your life than you know <laughs> than the plumber mm -hmm. arriving, and they need training. But for me, it's all about choice. You know, if I choose to be a plumber, great, go for it, you know, and get the best training and the best apprenticeship, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But why are people from low wealth backgrounds always, oh, well, go into a trade, you know? Um, why is it okay for someone from, you know, uh, a wealthy background, why is it okay for him to major in English? And it's not okay for, you know, someone from a low wealth background to major in English. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't get that. Some people would say, no, it's major in English probably, but <laughs> well, so, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. But. So, you know, I majored in English. Good. And, okay. <laughs> and, and, and my father, you know, who ran diners said to me, Steve, you speak English. Why are you majoring in English? <laughs> so anyway, so I'm, you know, I've got this affinity for people who major in English. No, but it, for me, it's all about making really good options available and more options available to people who often feel like they don't have options, you know, and often financially, they definitely don't have good options. This is pretty substantive. I mean, most of our colleagues of color and students of color recognize that what happens on campus in terms of diversity is pretty superficial. And enrolling 350 people in your institution who are black and brown, who are Pell eligible or undocumented, and then doing what you do, you know, offer classes for them, but do it in a way so that they don't rack up a lot of debt and graduate them, which is what you do. That's pretty substantive. So for me, again, it's that consistency of language and mission. Well, let's incarnate that with real students. I mean, changing names of buildings and um, taking down statues and having panel discussions, great. And I think Arupe is, after you do that, when people ask, then what? This is the then what. All right, Steve, thank you so much 
for coming on today and talking with us. Uh, we do have one last question for you that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person living in, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Dorothy Day. You are the third person in a row. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, <laughs> you, you can't do it. it. Too I, easy. Uh, <laughs> unless you have a real good reason or story. You're so, the third person in a week to say this to us. Well, I mean, I want to see it happen. Um, <laughs> She's on the way. It's going to happen. Give someone someone else, give someone else some power. I, this is breaking a rule. We never we never interrupt people and tell them that the person can't be. Right, right, right. But right. you're a Jesuit, but, so you can handle it. But you're it. literally the third person this week to say Dorothy. <laughs> All right. So, well, quickly about Dorothy Day than somebody else. Dorothy Day, I was on the Lower East Side I for, for five years, yeah. and I knew her. And she encouraged me to join the Catholic Worker. And I used to worship at Nativity where the Catholic Workers and Dorothy Day used to worship. And, you know, and I just, even then at 22, I just thought, this is really, this is a hard life. This is the long loneliness. And I, I couldn't do it. I just so admired her. And I was also so honored that, you know, she invited me. Uh, that that I mean, friends of mine have said, "God, you said no to Dorothy Day. What kind of a person are you?" <laughs> but um, but uh, but that really that, that that continues to move me. The other person I would canonize would be my father. You know, um, he really built community um, at Nick's Grill at the diner, and everybody was welcome. It was a very diverse population of diners, and um, all were welcomed. I think the first words that I could read that I could sound out was uh, were, um, it is our pleasure to serve you because <laughs> blazing on all the coffee cups. But that was kind of who he was. So that welcome and um, really kind of seeing dignity in all of his customers. I mean, he got out of the restaurant business in the 80s and he died in 2014. And a lot of his customers showed at the funeral and they were talking about baklava and you know uh, other favorite dishes but it was really that's that that sense of community so yeah uh nick the greek had served right, i love that yeah. as a connoisseur of new york diners i i think this is a great idea yeah all right all right so nick <laughs> nick and dorothy pray for us <laughs> amen and and, and steve if, we should say to our audience like if, if this model of higher education sounds appealing to you you do have you're working on spreading the word in, in the mission right so how could people find out more about this sure so um i moved back to new york in 2020 to start um, good time to move back to yes, New York. Yes, <laughs> delightful. Um, and to start this, you know, new 501c3, come to, the Come to Believe Network and Foundation, and we exist to accompany universities as they're discerning whether or not they have the horsepower, the capacity to do this. And um, obviously, we're really biased. We've said no to some universities, and we have a model that we kind of adhere to. We had Accenture uh, validate our model, so um, that that's kind of influential for us and for our work. Um, and you know what we do now is try to provide resources for universities to explore the model, and then we also try to provide seed funding for universities to hire some folks to do this before they enroll their first students, and they have some student revenue coming from Pell Grants and state aid. All right, so here, so. You provide guidance and money? Yes. All right. All right. I know there's a lot of people who listen to this who either work at a college or who went to a Catholic college or any college and think this should be something they should be getting in. Look up, come to believe, uh, and, and and be a pest if you need to be. Right? Good. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Delightful. This was so much fun to talk with you. Thanks for your interest in my work, and thanks for what you're doing uh, with this podcast. Amen. All right. All we'll right. see you soon. Okay. Bye. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? 
some big news if people are in New York City uh, or in that area. Uh, Ashley and I are going to be hitting up an event at the Sheen Center. They're hosting a screening of a brand new documentary that's coming out called Francis in Iraq, which is an original documentary. Uh, it's shot on location in Iraq during the years between the ISIS war and its aftermath. And it really centers around uh, the, the that historic first ever papal visit to Iraq in March 2021 that Francis took. So we're going to go check it out. It's March 22nd at 6.30 p.m. Um, so if you're in the area, come hang out with us. We've got details in the show notes here. So click that link. Again, it's at the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture here in New York. We'll uh, see you at Francis in Iraq and come say hi. And we are taking the week off from As One Friend Speaks to Another. So I will just get us out of here. Judge Whitacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whitacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whitacle. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whitacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.